Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Pick up where we left off last week. Um, as, we, as we said, uh, we'll be spending the, the rest of the semester looking at the back half of the book of Romans. So tonight we'll be looking at Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. And so as you're going there in your Bible, I want you to imagine a baseball team where every player is a left-handed first baseman or an orchestra of only violas or a hospital with nothing but podiatrists. You might think something is afoot with this illustration. <laughs> you get it? Afoot? I worked hard on that, guys. None of these organizations would be very successful, would they? A team of exclusively left-handed first basemen, an orchestra of violas, which are like the banjos of a symphony, really, um, and then nothing but foot doctors at a hospital. It would not be a very successful organization. And we see the same principle in our passage tonight, that God has gifted the church, he has gifted his people with a variety of members, with a variety of different skills and giftings, um, to be stewarded for the good of one another and for his glory. And so that's what we'll be looking at together in our text. And so let's stand together to honor the reading of God's word. And we'll read verses three through eight. This is God's word. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word and we pray that as we uh, give our attention to it tonight, that it would go forth and not be sent out in vain, but it would accomplish the purpose for which you sent it, that you would give us, your people, eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are willing to receive uh, your will. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You can be seated. So the title of tonight's sermon is Gifts of Faith. Gifts of of faith, and it's a two-point sermon, okay? I, I unloaded on you guys last week, first sermon of the semester, and it was the, the extended cut version. So I've got two points this week, which those of you who have been there, done that, you know I have had two-point sermons before and they weren't any shorter. But at least my outline is shorter, so I'm not making any promises, but there are two points, and they are this. One, faithfully assess your gifting. Faithfully assess your gifting. Number two, humbly steward your gifts for others. Very simple point tonight. Faithfully assess your gifting and then humbly steward your gifts for others. 
So we'll jump right in with the first point. Faithfully assess your gifting. This verse, verse 3, continues the theme that we looked at last week with the, the theme of right thinking. If you remember last week, we said that in order to live right, you must first think right. That uh, one of the first steps in Christian discipleship is this renewal of your mind, this mental renovation that must take place because our default schematic is towards the world, opposed to God. And Paul tells us, don't follow that worldly way of thinking, the default schematic of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world, rather, but be transformed. Go through metamorphosis through the renewal of your mind. You got to go in there and renovate that thing. You got to tear out the walls. You got to get out the rot and you got to build it back with a new floor plan. And so that same theme of right thinking continues through this passage um, as well. And he says essentially this, as you're seeking to think rightly, don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself. Now, last week, I, in my sort of old man get off my lawn moment, I, I offered a, a friendly uh, critique of your generation and that we tend to think of yourselves too much and too much of yourselves. And so Paul says the same thing here in, in verse three. Don't, don't think too highly of yourself. And so what does this tell us that the fact that this is in the scripture that was written 2,000 years ago, that thinking too highly of yourself didn't start with your generation. This is a, a human problem. This is part of that default schematic. It's part of the result of the fall is that our human nature is inclined towards pride, to think of ourselves too highly. Matthew Henry says, pride is a sin that is bred in the bone of all of us. And we have, therefore, each of us need to be cautioned and armed against it. And if you look closely at any of your sin and you just keep uh, peeling back the layers of that onion, what you will find at the core almost always is some type of pride, some type of thinking of yourself too highly. And here's the ironic thing. Often the people who are the most depressed and had the lowest self-esteem, if you peel that onion, what you will find at the bottom, even there, is a pride, is a thinking too highly of themselves. And we'll see some of that here in a bit. But pride is this human endemic problem that must be dealt with. It must be put to death. And that is this sort of chief sin. And so in our process of sanctification, in our process of living rightly before God, that makes sense that that's got to be one of the first things to go. One of the first things that we, we, we hack away at as we begin this mental renovation, we got to tear down these walls of pride in our hearts and in our minds. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Like you didn't have to read that in the Bible to know that's true many times. You see, the, the proud person, the person that thinks too highly of themselves and has a haughty spirit, it's not long before they fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul says, Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So think rightly about yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself. I couldn't 
say that enough times tonight. I could really fill up our entire time tonight just saying, don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think too highly of ourselves. This is why the apostle starts here, because it is a major need of every sinner, not just Gen Zers. So hopefully that makes you feel better about yourself, that you're not special, but also not too highly of yourself, because all that means is you're just a despicable sinner like the rest of mankind. He, he says, don't think too highly of yourself. Instead, think with sober judgment. Think with sober judgment. So what does this mean, sober judgment? Basically, it means think clearly and honestly about yourself. Think clearly and honestly about yourself. Don't believe your own hype, okay? When I used to be in the music world and used to sort of have to uh, sort of market your, your band or whatever, your, your songwriting abilities or these things, you would have to produce these uh, like one-page promotion kits that you would send to promoters so that they would book you and you put all your accolades on there, everything that you can think of. You know, my grandma said I was cute one time, you know, so that people will hire you. Like you put it all on there and, and sometimes you fluff it a little bit, you know, you fluff it like... You know, you put your thing in there. So, like, technically, I, I won the 2016 Florida State Banjo Contest. So I'm the Florida State Banjo Champion in the year 2016. I'd only been playing banjo one, one year. That's great. That was good on a resume, on a promotion packet. But if you knew the whole story, you would know that I was the only one in the contest that year. <laughs> but you don't have to put that on the flyer. So I can believe the hype. Yeah, I'm the greatest, right? And I think too highly of myself. Don't believe your own hype. Don't believe the ways in which people flatter you. Your mom flatters you. Your grandma flatters you. Don't, don't believe those things about yourself to the point that you think too highly of yourself. But think honestly about yourself. Be honest about your weaknesses. You, you know, know yourself. What, what's what's the, the proverb? Check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? Think honestly about yourself. Solomon said that somewhere. <laughs> but then also, another part of the sober judgment isn't just thinking honestly and, and humbly about yourself, but you also need to be aware of your strengths and the ways that you are gifted and the things that um, are good about your character, good about your um, talents. So think clearly and, and uh, honestly about yourself. A another way that we can sort of uh, misuse the gifts that God has given us is by not acknowledging them and having this sort of faux humility um, that neglects the gifts that we've been given. So if you're a, a talented person in a particular area, a gifted person in a particular area, and you neglect that gift because of some sort of humility, that's not virtuous either. That's not what God is calling you to do. Like, that's like the guys who were given the talents and, and they just buried it in a field. Right? That's not what Jesus asks of his people. So think rightly about yourself. Think with sober judgment. Don't believe your own hype. Don't hype yourself up. Don't think too highly of yourself. But judge yourself rightly, soberly. Uh, if you think about this, someone who has a gift from God, 
but in this sort of faux humility neglects it, that ultimately is disrespecting the kindness of God. Like God has given you a gift, and if you just bury it away in the field in order to have some sort of badge of humility, that's really disrespecting the gift that God has, has given you. And that's one of those things where I was talking about where sometimes people who have this low self-esteem, um, in a way, there's a pride there, as if you're not worthy, or, or you're, you would say you're not worthy to receive a gift from God, but what you're actually saying is that you know better than God. That, that you are more trustworthy than God. God would never give me something when God has promised in his word that he has and will. And so this faux false humility can be disrespecting to the kindness of God. And we don't want to do that either. We need to trust that the Lord does give good gifts to his children. If you think God and his nature, the, the, at the bottom of God is fatherhood. God is our father. That's where we started with the creed tonight. I believe in God, the father. And it is in his nature to give good gifts to his children. He's fatherly, he's generous, and he is kind. And so we need to trust that and not disrespect the gifts that he's given by, not, by neglecting them. James um, 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So we are to assess our giftedness according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, as we see as the verse goes along here. So we have these, these categories of thoughts that God gives gifts to his children, but we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves, but we should judge rightly. And so how are we to think about the gifts that God gives us? And, and Paul says, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. One thing that we can take away from this is that God's economy is not egalitarian or socialistic. God distributes his gifts according to his own wisdom, and it varies as he sees fit. Some are more gifted than others. Some are gifted in different ways, and all of this is according to his sovereign judgment. What he sees is fit. God doesn't go around and give everyone equal gifts. He gives some more and some less to whom much is given, right? There is much responsibility that comes with that. And, and this idea rubs against our modern notions of what is just and what is fair, right? That we think that justice is everyone receiving the same thing, the same gifts, the same amounts, right? That, that, that I am just as handsome as Elijah. We all know that I'm way more handsome than Elijah, <laughs> right? That that's unfair if somehow we acknowledge that I'm better looking than he is. We have this idea of justice that has come from the world according to the, the schematic of the world and not according to the scriptures. Because when we look to the scriptures, we see that God uh, distributes his gifts in a variety of different ways, in different measures. And here's the thing, you are responsible for whatever you are given. If you are given a lot, much is required of you. If you are given little, less is required of you. 
And God is just in that judgment. Um, and so therefore, uh, we shouldn't consider um, God unjust in this. So I was thinking about this. So how do we, how do we say that this inequality in God's economy, why is this not unjust? Why is it, why is it not unjust for God to, to work in this um, unequal, non-egalitarian way? And I was thinking through this, just trying to think through the philosophy of it and sort of ways to go with this. And, and I could only think of really one place to go with this. And it's to Romans 9, verses 20 through 21. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? That's the question right there. Verse 21. Why is it not unjust? Because the potter has rights over the clay to make it how he sees fit and which is good according to his purposes. And so we see that God gives out these gifts in a non-egalitarian or socialistic way, but he gives them out according to his own purposes. And so part of this sober judgment and evaluating that is evaluating how have you been gifted? Uh, what are your gifts and how can you use them? So I am aware that I am a more gifted teacher than some are. I am responsible, therefore, to use this above average ability to serve others. That sounds really prideful coming out of my mouth. Like I have a hard time saying that above average ability. But if we think rightly and soberly about this, this is true. Now, I am also well aware of the fact that I'm not as gifted as many others are. And so I must serve humbly and be willing to learn from those whose measure of faith at this point is greater than mine. And here's the key thing without envy and with thankfulness and contentment. So when someone comes along who is a more skilled communicator and teacher uh, than me, I should be thankful for that and be content with that and not envious of that because who distributed those gifts? The Father who gives good and perfect gifts to his children. And so that's how we think sober-mindedly. Okay, I've been gifted to serve the body in this way, is one way in which I can serve the body. But it doesn't mean that I am top dog and I should never give to others and allow others to serve in that same way. No, I should think of myself rightly, not too highly of myself, but not to the neglect of the gift either. So Paul describes God's giving of these gifts in terms of the measure of faith. The measure of faith. So what is, what is the measure of faith? What does faith have to do with it is kind of the question. What does what receiving gifts have to do with faith? Uh, one of my favorite commentaries uh, for studying, uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown, if you just Google that, it, uh, it'll come up. Um, they say faith is the inlet of all other graces. Faith is the inlet of all other graces. Matthew Henry says that faith is the radical grace. And, and radical, he doesn't mean it like surfer dude, radical dude, like, like extreme. He means it in the sense of at the core, at the root, like, like the radix, rad, uh, Latin radix is like root, so radish, 
A radish is a root. It's the same, same word. So it's the radical grace. It's, it's at the root of all other graces. Every grace flows and grows out of faith. And so this measure in which God gives is a measure of faith. Faith is at the bottom of all these things. And that all that we do as Christians flows from faith. And this is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So do you see this? We were given gifts of faith, not simply for ourselves, but for these good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do. He says that you've been saved by faith, uh, saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing. It, that great, that, that faith is the gift of God why? So that no one may boast, so that no one may think too highly of themselves. See, a lot of people would interpret this passage and say uh, this, the gift here is grace and not the faith. Grace is the gift. Faith is the means to receive that gift. But that's, that's missing the point. And, and there's, there's linguistic reasons for that as well. But let's just think about it as it is. If the faith was something that, I, that was a product of my own will, that arose from within me, uh, then I have something to boast about. I'm more faithful than this guy, right? I have more faith. I'm more humble. I have more faith, however you want to put that. I have something to boast in. But if the faith itself, the means by which we receive the grace of God, is itself a gift of grace, then I have zero reason to boast. No reason to boast. It's all to his glory. And he gave us this faith by which we're justified and saved. And it doesn't just end with that. It doesn't just end with the, the, the night you said the sinner's prayer and asked Jesus into your hearts. Or it didn't end when you got baptized. It, it was to, to, to come out of you every day. You're a new creation. You're a new workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So these gifts of faith that you were given are not for yourself, but it's to be good works for you to do on the behalf of others. Which leads us to the second point. Humbly steward your gifts for others. So having assessed our gifts, uh, now we need to steward these gifts for the good of others. And Paul begins this in verse 5, or well, 4 actually, um, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. He gives us this illustration of a body, literally a body. He says that you've got many members, many different body parts, and all these body parts, they differ from one another. Your hand is not your foot. Your nose is not your ear. They are, they're different from one another and they perform different functions. And that was intentional, right? It's intentional. Um, and he's saying, likewise, um, the body of Christ works a similar way. There are different members who have different functions in the body. 
We're not all the same. And there's intentionality in that. Um, and so we look at this. What is the body, body of Christ? We think of the body of Christ. Um, the body of Christ on earth is the church. It is the, the Catholic church that we confessed um, together. Um, and by that Catholic, I mean universal church throughout all ages. Uh, it is the church of Christ. And so if you're going to be part of the body of Christ, to be a member of the body of Christ, you have to do that through being a member of a church. Uh, you, you, you can't really be normatively a member of the church without being a member of a church. Right? If you're going to be part of the body, you've got to be part of a body. So this idea of sort of a lone ranger Christian, um, this Christian who's just, you know, me and my Bible under a tree somewhere or on YouTube these days, um, is foreign to the New Testament. Because when you are brought into Christ, you're brought into his body. And his body is a group of actual flesh and blood people. You're brought into that body. And, and technically speaking, Coram Deo is not that body. We're, we're a ministry of the body. right? And so as we are all come together as Christians, as Christians, we come together as the body in, in a way. But primarily, the body of Christ is a local congregation of believers centered around the right preaching of the word and the right administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Right? And so where you have those two markers uh, right administration of the word and the right administration of the sacraments, you can say that you have a church. Um, and so there is your body of Christ. And so you guys need to be part of a local church. Um, looking around the room, I know most of you are, um, and that's good. Uh, but if you're not, or if you're visiting, or you're trying to check this out, um, you need to move the ball down the field and forwarding that process to becoming part of a local church. Um, joining yourself to the body of Christ in a real way. This is not enough. We, we, we are not serving you bread and wine on Sunday, uh, on Sunday nights. Um, we're not serving you the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We, we're preaching the word. We're calling you, but we are not the gathered church. We're a ministry of the church. So that's the body of Christ. We're many members of one body, the body of Christ. I think most of you get that. But here's something that I want you to, to underline um, in your Bible if, if you do that kind of thing. Verse 5. So though many are one body in Christ, listen to this, and individually members of one another. Huh. What have you thought about that? That you are a member of someone else. I think we are all okay with saying we're members of this sort of theoretical concept of the church. We might even like sign a membership form and get baptized and go through that process and serve in a local church. But do you really think of yourself, you as an individual, being a part of someone else, like having this intimate connection to one another, that you are one another? And so that when this member is hurting, you are hurting. When this member is thriving, you are thriving. When you're rejoicing, they're rejoicing. And your life is tied up in their life as well, and vice versa. That is the reality. So like, if you take the image of the body, 
if one part of your body is injured or hurting, it has effects throughout the body. There, there's a connection there. And, and, and we, we aren't to amputate parts in health. Right? So, so it's not healthy to amputate body parts. So to disconnect yourself from the rest of the body is not healthy and is not good. It does not go to life. You need to be part of one another. Um, this belonging to one another is more than just worshiping together for a couple hours a week. Right? It's, it's more than that. It's knowing one another closely. Um, it is trusting one another. Um, it is, to use the evangelical cliche that I don't like saying, but it's true, it's doing life together. It's, it's, it's going through the rhythms of life together, pursuing the glory of God. Um, it's living quorum Deo together. And so we're members of one body, the body of Christ, and members of one another. So using this illustration of the body, Paul then moves into that. So there's different body parts, different members with different functions. And so he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, simple, let us use them. Let us use them. Very simple, very straightforward. Use your gifts. God's given it to you. Use it. All right. He's given it. I've talked about this before, uh, this illustration, um, where if, if you're here at Coram Deo and you're, or you're in your church and there's just something that seems to stink. Someone's doing something. It's, it's, we're not very good at this particular thing. And it, it, it stinks about Coram Deo. It may be that you are the nose, that you're the only one who can smell it. And you are the only one who's gifted to fix it. And so use your gifts, serve your role in the body. And in this passage in verses six through eight, Paul breaks down these gifts into two essential categories, two essential categories. So spiritual gifts you can think of as falling into one of these two categories, and that is word and service, word and service. So let's first look at the gifts of the word. And Paul speaks of prophecy. He speaks of prophecy here in verse six. Let us use them. Prophecy. What is prophecy? Uh, prophecy, it can mean foretelling, which we often think of, like the prophet predicts the future, right, and tells us what's coming. That's uh, one aspect of a prophet or a prophecy. The word can also mean forth-telling. It's telling forth and proclaiming a message as well. And I think in this context, uh, as it applies to us, we see this in the category of the forth-telling. Someone who proclaims the word of God. And so Paul breaks down these gifts into proclaiming or prophesying, forth-telling the word of God. And he says, if, if this is your gift, then proclaim it. Um, where is it at? I lost it in my Bible. Um, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. In proportion to our faith. So you are to proclaim what you know, not more, not less. A, a preacher, a teacher can get in a whole lot of trouble trying to proclaim more than you know. Been there, done that. Just thought too highly of myself and, you know, fell right into a pit. 
by proclaiming more than you know. That's not the measure of faith that you've been given. Don't go there. But also, don't go less, which I think is the bigger problem in the church today. Those who have been gifted to teach and proclaim the word proclaim less than they've been given because they, they want to water it down to make the message appealing to unbelievers, to new Christians. And so they think they know better than God and simplify the message, proclaim less than they know, and it's still unsatisfying. John MacArthur was once asked why he teaches so deeply. Like, why do you teach so deeply? Why don't you make it simple for people? And, and his response to this person was something like this. He says, I'm responsible to preach as deeply as I have been given understanding. I'm responsible to teach and preach as deeply as I have been given understanding. In other words, God has revealed this to me. He's given me this level of understanding. And so to whom much is given, much is required, right? And so I'm responsible to, to teach and explain and proclaim everything that God's given me. I don't want to waste it. I want to show you all that I can. And I can relate to this. Like just pouring yourself out to try to... to Proclaim the beauty of God's word to the depths that you know it and still feel like, oh, I wish I could go deeper. I wish I could go more. I would hate to be in the situation to think that I had to hold back. For me, it's almost like I, I just wish I could go further. Because the further you go, the more glory is there. You never run out of it. And so I think that's an important thing for us to understand, that we are to proclaim the word in proportion to our faith. Not more, not less. He breaks up this classification of prophecy gifts, of forthtelling word gifts, into teaching and exhortation. Teaching and exhorting. So teaching, what's the difference? Teaching is the idea of just communicating facts and meaning. Here's the text. Here's what it means. Here's how you understand it in its context, blah, blah, right? Word study. That's teaching. Um, Exhorting um, is a step further than that. Actually, the word exhorting here in this passage is the same word that we talked about last week in the appeal. So where, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, that's the same word as exhorting here. I exhort you. And so what did we say that that word was like? It was, I urge you, I beg you. There's a, there's a, a call to action. A, exhorting is seeking to persuade to action to urge, appeal, encourage. And so people will say, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? And, and I think that's the difference. I think preaching has this element of exhortation that says, here's what the text says. Here's what it means. And now I'm going to try to compel you and to call you to respond to it. Right? I'm going to call you to action. I'm going to preach to your hearts to compel affections for the truth of God's word. That's, I think that's what the difference between teaching and preaching is this element of exhortation. So those are the, the word gifts here in this passage, teaching and exhorting. And then he gives us three service gifts, service gifts. He says, uh, contributing with generosity. The one who contributes in generosity. So let's talk about contributing. Let's talk about 
giving. This is a uh, taboo subject, uh, particularly when it comes to Christianity and the church. I remember a point in my life when I was you guys' age, the moment that a preacher started talking about giving, I was done. I was out. I was like, you're just after my pocketbook, bro. Like, teach the Bible. Don't talk about my, don't talk about giving. And, um, and that was foolish. That was showing that I was unfamiliar with the Bible. That was showing that I was following the schematic of the world and not God's revelation of myself. And so let's talk about giving. Let's talk about contributing. Um, we talked about being a member of the church, and this is one of those aspects of what faithful church membership involves. Um, all Christians are expected to give to the ministry of the church. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a member of a local church, you're expected to give generously to support the ministry of the church. We see this even in the Old Testament with the, the tithe and the Levitical priesthood that was supported by the ministry. Paul speaks of pastors um, needing to be paid from the ministry. They make their living through the, I mean, if they, uh, yeah, if they give their living to the gospel, they need to receive from the ministry of the gospel. And he says that in the same way that the, the priests of the old covenant received their support through the giving, that the new covenant uh, pastors are to be um, paid through the faithful giving of the church. And so this is something that the Bible commands us all to take part in. And so I don't think that is what he's talking about here. I don't think he's saying that some people are gifted to give to the church um, because that is an expectation of everyone here. Um, I think what he's talking about here is those who are especially gifted financially. Those who are especially gifted financially and can go above and beyond in generosity um, to say that that person, like that is the gift here um, of, of contributing, of giving um, God has blessed you. He's given you a good job um, that you can go above and beyond then, then do so with generosity. So, you know, your money is not simply for yourself. It's for the good of the body as well. Um, you, you were blessed to be a, a blessing. And so some of you like, might be thinking like, okay, so how do I, like, particularly some of you guys, been like, I want to be part of a church. I want to be a leader in a church. I want to be a support to a church, but I really don't think I need to go to a seminary. I don't think I need to be a pastor. What do I do? Maybe you should just have a good job. Maybe you should just work a solid trade and make good money and give generously to your local church. Maybe you can support missionaries through your giving. You know, maybe you can be a plumber and fund mission work across the world. Have you ever thought about that plumbing as ministry? Uh, Paul says maybe, yeah, if you have the gift of contributing. If, just wait till you guys are fully adults. I know you are adults. Don't let anyone tell you you're not an adult. All right? That's my, I hate that about college students. They still think they're kids. You're adults. You grown, okay? You grown. <laughs> but wait till you get your own house and you have to hire a plumber for the first time. You're going to go, bro, I went to school for four years. And this guy's making way more money than me, right? So I'm just saying, you still got time to drop out. <laughs> um, but maybe that's a way that you can serve the church. Like, you probably haven't even thought about that because we've so, like, 
the only way that you can serve the church is through preaching, through gifts of the word, right? But these gifts or service are, are just as important in the body. Why? For the church. So contribute with generosity. And then he says, those who lead with zeal, with lead um, zeal. This is a word also can mean rule. Those who rule, do it with zeal or diligence. So God may give you authority in the church as an elder or a leader in the local church. Use that gift with diligence and zeal. Stir up faithfulness in those around you. What does it look like to lead with zeal? Like People want to follow a zealous leader, a leader who believes in the vision, a leader who is on the front lines, a leader who is the first one there and the last one to lead, or last one to leave. That is what you're called to do. If, if God has given you that gift to rule or to lead, do it with zeal. Do it with diligence. This word can also mean diligence. Uh, don't skimp by. Don't do the, the bare minimum necessary to, to, to draw a paycheck or to make sure that the meeting happens, right? Do it with diligence. Do it with all you've got. Invest. Uh, pour yourself out. Um, invest the gift that God has given you. And then the final act, uh, the gift of service, is acts of mercy. Acts of mercy with cheerfulness. With cheerfulness. I, and I thought about this one a bit. That's, it's not, if I was thinking about this, I don't know if I would put cheerfulness with mercy. And obviously I wasn't, uh, I'm not the writer of scripture here. Well, I was thinking about this. Acts of mercy. Oftentimes, helping the poor and the vulnerable, the sick, often puts you in really uncomfortable situations and, and where you can easily complain. But a cheerful spirit in the midst of a difficult work is a true gift from God. If you can get in the ditches, if you can get in the, the, the places that no one else wants to go in order to serve those in need, and you can do that cheerfully without complaining, that is a great blessing. It's a gift from God, and it is a reflection of the Spirit of Jesus. It really is, if you think about that. Like, what did Jesus do? Philippians, it says that Jesus, that we're supposed to think, we're supposed to think, right? Think rightly about ourselves. Our, our minds need to be renewed. And Paul says in Philippians 2, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then, and then what, are we, what are we to do with that? He says, what did Jesus do? He didn't consider equality of God something to be grasped, something to be held on to at all costs. But instead, he, he let it go. He humbled himself and he took on the form of a servant, a human, took on our flesh, the likeness of sinful flesh, as Paul says in Romans. And he did that. And being found in human form, he, he humbled himself even further, even to the point of death on the cross. So Jesus did this, the most uh, supreme act of mercy. He did it with cheerfulness and joy. He didn't complain about it. Hebrews 12 says that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He, he endured this, this supreme act of mercy because of the joy that was set before him. And so that is our calling. 
as we follow Jesus, as we live as the body of Christ on earth, we follow in his example. We look to him. We have his mind among ourselves. We don't think too highly of ourselves. Said so we humble ourselves and we engage in acts of mercy, serving others, counting others more significant than ourselves. And we do it because of the joy that is set before us. Psalm 16 says the fullness of joy is at the right hand of God is in Christ forever. And so we do this work. So let us use the gifts that God has given us at great cost to his son. Let us use them faithfully and humbly as we serve one another, those around us, and ultimately as we serve the Lord himself. Let's pray. So God, we come to you tonight first thankful for the gifts that we have been given. First and foremost, that the gift of your son, who is our righteousness, who is our justification, who is our peace. And we thank you that you gave him freely. Um, that even while we were yet sinners, you sent him. And that he didn't think too highly of himself when he is the, the one who had every right to the highest of thoughts of himself. But instead he set that aside and served us. He came in humility, took on our form, took on the form of a servant and gave his life for us on the cross. So God, we ask that you make us increasingly thankful for this grace and that you make us increasingly into that image. And that this gospel that we believe on and that we proclaim from the scripture and from our lips, God, may it come out of our hands and our hearts towards one another first and foremost and then towards those who are far from you, that while they were yet sinners, they would know Christ's love for them through his body who was gathered. Lord, I pray that you would bless this campus um, with humble Christians who endure shame, who endure um, ridicule, but who live for the joy that is set before them in Jesus. God, may that be us. Lord, we pray that you uh, exercise these gifts in us as we exercise them for your glory, that we would um, know that it is you at work in us. And God, we thank you uh, once again for the grace uh, in which we stand. And we offer our lives to you in your son's name. Amen.